Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today joined by two very special guests, Marcos Veramis, Managing Director of Investments at Evanston, an institutional investment firm based in Chicago, and David Fauchier, CEO of Cambrian Capital, an investment firm out of London focused on crypto funds. David, Marcos, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having us. Thank you, Eric. Let's start by, uh, by way of introductions. So I've been I've been researching and and investing in this space for uh, the past eight eight or so years since late 2012 early 13. Um, I did a, originally a master's in history and did a lot of economic history, and then after that I was I was working in tech, and uh, someone sent me the Bitcoin white paper and it was this sort of wonderful kind of intellectual uh, thing to to kind of work on and think about, and I just kept noodling on it and and after about six months started to realize that these these crypto networks and, and Bitcoin was really, uh, really the only one at the time were kind of enabling coordination at scale in a way that didn't exist before. And uh, that you shouldn't really think of these as digital currencies, but as uh, at least for me, generalizable mechanisms for coordinating work um, at massive scale. And there's a lot to unpack in that, but the, the essence is that it kind of clicked for me that, that crypto as a whole was going to be this big kind of enabling technology over the next couple of decades and potentially would, would offer solutions for a lot of the problems that we knew we had with the internet and, and still have. And so it's, it's, everything sort of went from that. And Cambriel is about two and a half years old. Awesome. Uh, and and uh, Marcos, how about you? Yeah, so um, I'll start by saying that I happen to be Greek. So that played a role. Uh, in my interest in crypto, I followed the European crisis, you know, very closely. You know, I've been living here in the States and in London for the past uh, 15 plus years, but I have a lot of friends and uh, family in Greece and uh, real estate and so on. And and so I followed the crisis, the events in Cyprus, for example, and I that created an interest in um, in understanding what Bitcoin is. I started, you know, reading a few books like uh, Mastering Bitcoin and started um, delving into Medium articles and so on. And while I was at Cambridge Associates, my previous uh, job, I volunteered to take uh, over the research effort on uh, anything related to blockchain and crypto. And so I, I got a lot of access to funds, to entrepreneurs and so on, and kind of understood the space further and further, further until it became, um, you know, one of my main personal and professional interests at this point. And let's talk about how institutional uh, in- investors ha- have, have approached the, the, the space. And may- maybe, uh, Marcus, you want to give more, uh, some background institutional investors more, more broadly uh, that might help frame the discussion on how we should think about them in the realm of, of, of crypt- investing in crypto. Yeah. So uh, when I, um, when I say institutional investors, I generally mean, you know, endowments and foundations, sovereign wealth funds, pension funds, maybe some large family offices. You could classify them as institutions. And I've actually observed these institutions through the beginning of, the, of their crypto investments. So if you 
take a step back and look uh, at 2017, 2000, early 2018, I would say at that point they were extremely skeptical of crypto and the allocations to crypto were, I would, I would say, probably zero. Maybe they had some exposure to the crypto space through their venture funds, but, uh, but most of them didn't even like that. Now, fast forward to 2020, things have changed a lot. And um, by the way, I should note here that I started covering the crypto space for Cambridge Associates back in early 2018 when it was uh, just a curiosity, as I said, at that point, and nobody was investing. But uh, two years later, there have been quite a few allocations, still limited, but quite a few allocations and small in size, but in dedicated crypto funds. So you've started seeing the institutional world entering this space and learning about this space. Uh, so I would say that it has progressed a lot over two years because it started from uh, a big skepticism towards this space and nobody was touching it. Uh, David, how have you seen the, the space uh, evolve and how has it evolved uh, related to uh, expectations from when you, uh, when you first got into it and the opportunity you, you, you saw in front of you? So, so Marcos has, I think, one of the very best kind of insights on, on the kind of proper institutional landscape and, and how they're thinking about things and what their timelines and, and allocation schedules might look like. My angle has been much more, I've spent a lot more time with family offices. Um, so maybe, maybe I can speak to that. Um, mostly in the US, also in Europe, uh, not in Asia. Um, and what, what we've sort of observed is that, you know, 2017 and 18, there was this, this small kind of forward thinking, quite entrepreneurial group of family offices that took a first plunge and sort of dipped their toe into crypto. And that, that happened over kind of 17, 18 and, and a little bit of 19. Um, but it, it's a very small group and, and these LPs pretty much all know each other, uh, especially kind of the New York crowd. And then there was sort of this, um, there's been a little bit of a, a pause and you're sort of waiting for the majority of kind of smaller family office type allocators to start dipping their toes in. And so I think over the last, you know, six, eight months, we were starting to see uh, a movement of that kind of second wave, which was much larger. Um, and then post-coronavirus, I, I think uh, we'll, we'll see a big kind of uh, bifurcation or, or polarization between people who are, I think, trying to move to cash and or things that are familiar to them and, and kind of simple and understandable, you know, equities, bonds, back to basics. And then people that, you know, maybe think the world is going to explode and, and are looking for, for true alternatives and true hedges. And then over in Europe, you know, the Europeans are typically slower and more conservative. And what we were seeing, at least on the ground out of London and Switzerland, was that same group of kind of like entrepreneurial family offices making their first kind of step into the space, just, you know, kind of two years behind the US. And so you were actually starting to be able to raise money in Europe for crypto strategies coming into, coming into this year. And I think that's got, you know, another year or so to play out. And then we'll need to wait again through some kind of a trough for, for the next group of LPs to come in. Um, but all, all bets are off as of, as of March. Yeah. I just want to add here just one thing, Eric and David, that um, in, in my view, the watershed moment for institutional involvement in the space came with the, with the first Andreessen Horowitz Fund. 
the CNK fund one back in the middle of 2018. That's that's when I saw kind of the first allocations from endowments and foundations and sovereign wealth funds and so on. And from there, you know, uh, another fund paradigm, a spin out of Sequoia came to market and they, that also received a lot of interest. And so that that I, I those two I think were the catalyst for for institutional flows into the space, and then since then, good news for the space is that new managers, without these big brand names, have managed to secure some institutional capital yeah. as well. It's been it's been about a year since well you released a, a pretty incredible report on the crypto space uh, in January February of 2019 I think, and I think it. it the reception outside of the crypto community was quite muted. And then Facebook came along and did Libra. And I remember you you mentioning that there'd been a real kind of uptick in interest uh, post-Libra. And uh, I remember asking you at the time if you thought it would be kind of a, that would be a watershed moment in allocation. And I wonder a year on almost, has that kind of happened? Do you think that Libra was a, a turning point in, in how people perceived crypto or that it sort of died down? That's a great question. So yeah, it's true. So we wrote this paper back in February of 2019, released it then. The price of Bitcoin was around 4000 or less at the time, and we were just out of that bear market. So when it came out outside of the crypto world, we did receive a lot of questions about it from institutions. To note here is that this, this report went to a lot of institutions. We did receive a lot of requests and questions, but uh, I didn't see that many flows. And then when Libra came, when Facebook announced Libra, I think uh, the volume of questions, requests, and and uh, presentations increased uh, substantially. And investments did pick up since then, but not to the extent that I would have expected at the time. So I believe, David, when we had spoken back then, I told you, I think now this is the catalyst and we'll see much more. Mm-hmm. So we did see substantially more, I would say, but it's still very limited. It's still very limited. We can go into the reasons why it's very limited, but uh, it's um, you know a handful of institutions investing at this point and in kind of small small check sizes, but it's growing and um, and it's increasingly on the agenda of, of various investment committees to to at least review kind of the crypto landscape and the manager landscape out there. So can you, can you put some numbers on that? Like, uh, you know, how many people, how many institutions in the US do you think are actually considering this? And, and what would the investment amounts look like? Maybe aggregated? Oh, wow. That's a, Sorry. you know, it's you more from point? anecdotal. It's more anecdotal evidence yeah. or kind of my gut feeling. So don't hold me accountable on this. But I would say uh, there should be at least 25, 30 institutions in the US. That, in the U.S. that uh, that have been actively looking at crypto, and, and this includes some of the large endowments, but also some smaller endowments and smaller foundations. Uh, I would say at least 25, 30, and of which maybe half have already made allocations. The other half are kind of far into their research into the space and uh, meeting managers and so on. So in terms of dollar amounts, they're still pretty small. So one thing to note is that even if you're a $1 billion endowment, let's say as an example, you know, when your typical investment in a, in a fund is, you know, in a case, in the case of equity, it could be 5 6% of the endowment. In the case of venture capital funds, maybe 
you know, substantially uh, smaller than that. But in the case of crypto, it's even smaller. So you can see a $1 billion endowment investing like $5 million into a crypto fund uh, at this stage. So they're dipping their toe. So in terms of actual dollar amounts, they're, they're not a lot at this point, but they're increasing. And as you know, it's a lot of capital out there. So it's a process. I think it will take a few years. And if there's, my theory is that if there's a, a use case outside of Bitcoin, Bitcoin ha- is kind of a killer app. You could call it a killer app. But if, it's an, if there's another killer app coming out of crypto in the next couple of years, I think you're going to see much more institutional capital going in. And do you have a sense for what COVID has, has done to that appetite? Another great question. And I think in general, COVID for risk assets, and I would call crypto a risk asset area, let's exclude Bitcoin for the time being. I think from, from what I see, you know, we're still early in the game, of course, of the COVID situation and the recession and the effects are going to be evident a little later with a lag, I, I believe. But I think it's hurtful for fundraising and for risk assets, broadly speaking, uh, because people will eventually want to uh, to go into anything, you know, pretty slowly, cautiously hoard some money. You know, they're they're also getting hit on the on their liability side on and their, on their operations side. So take up mm-hmm. endowment like a university, right? They're going to be shut for a while. They might not be receiving tuition fees or other fees. So I think in that sense, it's not great, but it's not great for anything. Now, with that said, I've had a few conversations with institutional investors with respect to Bitcoin specifically as a potential hedge in this environment. So as of now, I would say it's probably a good environment for Bitcoin and probably a less good environment for the crypto space as a whole ex-Bitcoin. But on the other hand, you know, as with traditional venture, it's in these types of crises where valuations go down and then private valuations go down and then you know good companies are survive and are capital efficient and resilient and then you see kind of the really good returns bouncing back from these types of situations david i want to address something you said earlier about uh for people who think the world is gonna is gonna burn or or most of the people who are interested in crypto right now uh interested in in as a hedge uh or is there is there a world in which uh, the status quo remains, and yet you know uh, the, the crypto asset class does does well too. Uh, I think kind of both are correct. I always try and separate Bitcoin out from the rest of uh, of the crypto world. I think Bitcoin is is the only crypto asset, cryptocurrency, which is basically mature, which isn't going to change, and which has found its use case. And I think that use case is sort of settled on on Bitcoin as this kind of interesting hedge against monetary and fiscal irresponsibility. Um, and, and six months ago, that was that was a somewhat academic exercise. Um, but hard assets that are also transportable are actually quite rare and are now potentially quite in demand. And and if you sort of stack kind of Bitcoin up against gold and and break down all of the de- desirable characteristics of gold. And, and do a kind of compare and contrast with Bitcoin, you'll, you'll find that it basically ticks all, all the same boxes, except for uh, this kind of strong, time-tested social um, agreement that everybody has that, that, that gold is a store of value during difficult times. 
And so I, I wouldn't say that that Bitcoin is a is on the same kind of par as as gold and and seen so strongly and and through thick and thin and and war and whatever you want to be the store of value. But it's you know I think you can make a very strong case that it's in transition and potentially going now. And if it does, it's incredibly underowned. And so you've got this interesting asymmetry with Bitcoin that you don't have with gold. And so I sort of have this feeling that that firstly that is kind of the the dominant narrative for Bitcoin. I think there are other arguments you can make around, you know, Bitcoin being the source of collateral for, you know, value transfers on the internet and, and sort of this base layer that allows you to to collateralize um, things around the internet and and uh, enable a bunch of other crypto networks. But if if you really look at kind of the core of it today, it's that kind of hard asset type hedge. And it's potentially very interesting and it's a small it's it's a small market that's it's not very owned and it takes not that much to move the price relative to gold and i think sure if if you're in you know an oecd country or or the us in particular and you own a stable currency and you're in a stable government and you have a relatively stable economy then these these things are relatively uh um academic and and hypothetical but when you live in a country which is a smaller economy which has large amounts of nominal us debt uh, usd denominated debt um, and you don't have the luxury of just being able to print money and and have fiscal deficits i think you get sort of a you, you catch a bid in a few of those countries and if you do that can really move the price so it's like bitcoin versus gold i think there's these these uh, there's kind of a wider variety of of scenarios and outcomes in which it might do well. Um, so I think predominantly Bitcoin is interesting as a hedge at the moment, and then the rest of crypto is, as Marcos was saying, it's it's high risk, it's venture, it's it's really early stage stuff. Um, the token economic models of these cryptocurrencies are still changing, so you don't even know how they're going to accrue value five years from now. So it's it's very early stage stuff, very interesting, but it. I think that stuff firmly goes in the venture bucket and Bitcoin basically goes in your macro bucket with, you know, a little bit of it going in kind of the, the venture bucket as well. And you were talking a bit about uh, COVID, but talk more about, I mean, some people are confused about how to think about uh, Bitcoin through COVID, through the sort of the Fed, uh, you know, printing trillions of dollars um, and, and how, it's, how it's responded. Uh, how should we make sense of, of how Bitcoin has acted and, and what that means for it. So uh, we specialize in, in market neutral and, and therefore kind of trading. And um, Bitcoin had this huge crash on, on in the days leading up to March the 12th and then specifically on March the 12th. Um, it dropped about 50% peak to trough uh, very, very fast, then rebounded and has sort of been uh, kind of creeping back up since then. Um, but Bitcoin dropped to you know, you had liquidations at about $3,300 um, on BitMEX. From what we've been able to untangle from that, it was very much a kind of liquidity-driven uh, crash. Uh, you had a broader market that was selling off. People wanted to take risk off. And when you have a lot of leverage in the system, as we did, we had a lot of people basically going and buying derivative contracts, perpetuals, futures, et cetera, with large amounts of leverage. And the majority of platforms on which they're trading these the collateral that you post to get that leverage is Bitcoin. And so you're buying Bitcoin with leverage and, and using Bitcoin as collateral. And so what happens 
as the price of that contract or derivative drops, you need to post more collateral. But because your collateral is denominated in Bitcoin and the actual value of that Bitcoin itself is also going down, you get this kind of exponential requirement in funding. And so you had this scramble for Bitcoin and, and people couldn't post enough collateral quickly enough. And so the whole thing sort of blew up. You had this massive blow up in the market. But that kind of that pricing on Bitcoin and the way in which it crashed is not representative of what the spot markets were doing for physical Bitcoin, which basically didn't move that much outside of arbitrage activity. And so on the one side, you've got kind of like a lot of speculation and leverage and trading and it went up, then it blew up and then it recovered. And on the other, you've got kind of your, the people that are actually holding this uh, because they get some utility from it or they're holding it as a hedge. And if you look at, you know, different statistics, uh, on-chain statistics, looking at, you know, where the big, big Bitcoin owners selling um, with the old Bitcoin owners selling. Um, so you look at like statistics like days destroyed, you can't see kind of a big pattern in, in mass selling by, by the big holders of this or the long-term holders. So this seems to have been really kind of a, a trading phenomenon rather than anything else. And I think, yeah an economy kind of crashes, goes into recession um, pretty quickly. Uh, stock markets crash. It's normal for assets to all correlate and all go down at the same time. This is what we see in any market panic. And Bitcoin was certainly part of that. But the kind of longer term thesis around it, I think only got stronger. And I think when, when I look and, and, and speak to people in the crypto space and look at what's happening, it weirdly seems like Everything is is pretty much you know normal and, and has been since February. People are raising, companies are still moving forwards. There aren't mass layoffs because this space is so distributed and so engineering heavy. Basically, everybody can work from home, and the conferences just happen online, and, and the world moves on in crypto. And so, COVID doesn't seem to have had much of an impact so far. I think it will have an impact on allocations. Um, but there's sort of enough money locked up in, in venture funds that if you're a really high quality project or company in this space, you can get funding. Yeah, I want to add something here to, to David's points. That these are great points on, on Bitcoin, first of all. Uh, let's put it into perspective. David, I think, analyzed the, the drawdown in Bitcoin you know, really effectively in, the, in February, I believe it was, or sorry, March. March. But since since then, you know, if you look at the numbers, and of course, Bitcoin, uh, like um, other assets, but particularly Bitcoin because it's so volatile, is very um, beginning and end sensitive. But as as of right now, Bitcoin is up twenty five plus percent, and gold is up like twelve thirteen percent, and then markets are down fifteen percent. And if you look at these small caps, they're down twenty five percent. So I would say that as of now, Bitcoin has done really well. Uh, in this environment. So the other thing I want to note is that I saw some uh, a posting on Twitter I, from various people that I found interesting. Uh, you have quantitative easing in the, in the world right now, and then you have quantitative tightening in Bitcoin, you know, with a halving. So I think its role as, as a hard asset in an environment of zero interest rates and unprecedented money printing in the next few months, could be evident, I think, its role as a hedge. And, and then on the comments that David made on with respect to crypto and 
teams being distributed and so on. I think that's a great point as well. A lot of these projects have been functioning pretty well in this environment, unlike some particularly physical types of businesses. Well, why don't we talk about the different uh, fund strategies uh, in, in crypto and some of the uh, pr- pros and, and, and cons there? Yeah. yeah Marcos, do you want to chat about VC? Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, I, I can start with VC and I'll let you talk about the, the, the quant stuff sure. because you know the quant stuff uh, really well. And I think you, you've done some of the best research there. So just to set the stage here, I think, you know, there, it's, it's one of these unique areas where there are, there are many types of strategies and um, they, they come, you know, one, on one end of the spectrum, you have the ability to invest directly, like you invest in Bitcoin or Ether or other crypto assets directly, uh, to index funds, to hedge funds, and all the way to venture capital. And that these all, all these strategies are quite different. Uh, but there's also a lot of overlap. I think the space is very new. And so, for example, you might see hedge funds that own both equity and tokens and Bitcoin, and then you will see venture funds that, uh, that own all of the above as well. So far in the institutional world, I think it's the venture type of structures that have been the most popular. And um, I generally favor the venture structures for reasons that I can explain at, at this stage. Um, even when it relates to to holding some tokens and um, and Bitcoin and so on, but then of course you know on the hedge fund side there are some more trading oriented strategies that would not make sense to have in a venture structure. But again, from an institutional perspective, I think venture structures are by far the ones uh, that people have favored so far. And if you ask me the reasons why, I mean it's simple. I think. Most institutions view this as a subset of venture capital, view this space as a subset of venture capital, even including Bitcoin, I would say. And it is in many ways a subset of venture capital. And therefore, a lot of the people researching this space for these institutions are venture capital people. So they have a tendency to to favor the venture structures in the first place. On the other hand, you know, because this space is so volatile, so fast moving, uh, having a venture structure, I think, helps in many ways the manager. It helps because, you know, one can average into the space over time. And it, that seems like a good idea in this space, given how things evolve and change. One can draw capital, you know, when there's a crisis. For example, I saw some venture funds back, uh, venture structures, crypto venture structures uh, back in, in uh, 2018 when there was selling everywhere, they were actually drawing capital to buy Bitcoin, and now they've bounced back really aggressively, and they, they have really strong returns as a result. So the ability to draw capital, play offense, you know, when at the worst possible time in terms of, of uh, prices is, is a great benefit. There's less business risk because, you know, you know how much you have in commitments and how much you're going to get paid over time. And then you pay, the carry is paid at the end of it all. So for these reasons, you know, I've, I've generally favored venture types of structures. And by that, I mean, not necessarily equity. I mean, teams that play the entire crypto spectrum from equity all the way to, to Bitcoin. Now, the quant side, David, is, a, is, you know, a totally different animal here. So I, I think on the venture side, 
you're really kind of making kind of deep, fundamental, long-term technology bets. And on the quant side of things, it's totally different. And, and what you're really doing there is, is trading what we call market structure. Um, you've got, you know, as we see it, there's sort of like three main buckets of quant strategies. The first one is arbitrage. And, and there are features in this market that are quite unique. Um, it's extremely volatile and extre- it's extremely fragmented. Um, and, and quite uniquely, you, you, in, in, in our market in crypto, you have Bitcoin that trades against you know, the US dollar, the euro, pound, uh, the Polish zloty, et cetera, et cetera, across a ton of different kind of liquidity venues. So basically, every country has like one, two, or five, or 10 competing crypto exchanges. All of them trade Bitcoin. So if you zoom out and look at it globally, you've got you know, over 100 liquid crypto exchanges that are all trading Bitcoin, and they will trade those typically against fiat, um, amongst other things. And so you have these situations where uh, you know, people wake up in, in, I don't know, in Poland, and they fight, see some news that happened in China. So for example, in, I think, I think it was like mid-October the Chinese premier kind of stood up and, and sort of announced to the world that blockchain was going to be a strategic priority for China. And they removed uh, Bitcoin mining from the list of banned activities. And Bitcoin shot up like 40%. If you were asleep in Poland or Germany or, or New York, when that happened, you probably didn't react to it. Um, but if you know it was a Friday afternoon in China, everybody probably pulled out their phone and traded that news. And so you get these kind of dislocations in price where the price can move quite suddenly for some reason. But different exchanges will respond to that information in different ways and, and with time lags. And so it's very easy for you to kind of buy Bitcoin high over here and sell it um, even higher over there when the price is shooting up or vice versa. Um, and so you get these kind of very, very simple uh, arbitrages in, in the spot market. So, so just you know, standard Bitcoin for fiat. But then there's crypto to crypto arbitrages. You have three legs. So, you know, arbitraging like USD to Bitcoin to Euro and back to dollar. Um, then you have all of these kind of derivatives in the space. And, you know, you have perpetuals and futures and quantos and options. And all of these kind of are related in mathematical ways to each other. And they trade with, you know, typically a lot of leverage and even more volatility than the spot market. And so you get all of these dislocations across this market. And you can basically transpose well-known arbitrage strategies from traditional markets equities, FX, commodities. And you can just kind of like copy paste them into the crypto space with, with great effect. And so you have like in quant, this first bucket around arbitrage, a second bucket around like what we call liquidity provision or, or market making, you know, providing liquidity to people who want to trade big blocks or bringing liquidity to different exchanges or across different pairs. You can basically think of it like a toll booth. Um, you make a little bit of money um, every day to provide that liquidity, you basically get paid for it. And then the third bucket is, is what we call statistical strategies. So if we focus in on Bitcoin, but this applies to everything else, um, we don't have robust fundamental valuation models for this. Um, so these currencies will trade on kind of technicals. And so you'll see things like trend uh, working really, really well in markets like this. You know, these things go up and they just keep going up and they go down and they keep going down. And so trend following strategies, especially longer term ones can work extremely well. And then you've got equivalents to kind of statistical arbitrage and, and you know, mean reversion and a bunch of other stuff in this market. 
Um, and so the quant space is really uh, has professionalized an enormous amount since we started specializing in it about two years ago. And what you're typically seeing is basically like it's traders and hedge funds with backgrounds in trading in traditional markets, typically the kind of Chicago prop shop scene, your Jane Street Capitals and your QSRs, you know, Siskahana, Wolverine, et cetera. People leaving there where they were trading futures, you know, very profitably and moving into crypto, which is less efficient and more volatile and just making a killing there. And so it's, it's this interesting place where I think there's a lot of opportunity because of the volatility and because of the fragmentation. And you have people that are just trading that, but it's, it's certainly more zero sum than the VC side of things. And then finally, you've got, you know, we've been spending a lot of time on what we call special situations. The crypto space is getting more and more kind of large and more and more complex. And you, you have kind of special situations popping up all over the place in credit, in kind of, uh, you know, secured credit, uh, trade financing, uh, litigation financing, uh, bankruptcy claims, liquidations. There's all sorts of kind of fun stuff hanging around this place. And the crypto guys don't want to touch it because it might outperform Bitcoin. And they, they kind of all think that, you know, Bitcoin's going to moon. And why would I take the risk on this other investment when, when I might not make as much money as, as buying Bitcoin? And then the guys from outside of crypto, to them, they don't want to touch the space because it's all kind of drug money and tulip bubbles. And so you come to them with, I don't know, a simple bankruptcy claim that they can buy for less than the cash in it uh, with a free option on um, kind of on Bitcoin on top, for example, and they'll just like kick you out the room. I've never seen anything with more alpha in this space if people are willing to either bite the bullet on crypto and say, I'm actually going to do the work to get comfortable with it or bite the bullet on saying, maybe there is some world in which Bitcoin doesn't get to a million bucks. And maybe I could do a, one other trade. And so it's a very interesting space and, and there's tons of, tons of stuff in it. But the, the main things are kind of like the VC bucket, the quant bucket. And then other than that, it's, it's stuff you know, at the fringes you need to kind of sniff around for. I totally agree with you, by the way, David, that there's, there's a ton of interesting stuff. Uh, in in special situations, quantitative strategies, and so on. I think one of the reasons, aside from the reasons you mentioned, um, people not trusting crypto and so on, but one of the reasons why institutions haven't put money into the space yet is, I think, scalability, right? Mm-hmm. In a lot of these strategies, these quant strategies can work wonders. You know, they can give you 50, 60% types of returns, but they can only be, you know, $10 million or yeah. something in order to be able to succeed that. And that, and that, that kind of goes to the second point I wanted to, to make here with respect to these strategies that they're, they're beautiful in terms of their, of their alpha potential, but because they're not scalable, a lot of the very talented people in the quant space haven't navigated towards them because they're making much more money in much less efficient areas, but where they can deploy tons more capital. So, but that said, you know, you've started seeing, I think, some some really experienced uh, investors leaving the traditional macro world and hedge fund world and going into it. Um, so interestingly, Renaissance uh, Technologies, um, who've run, run the medallion, basically the most profitable and successful quant fund uh, in the world, recently filed with the SEC to say that they, they want to kind of add Bitcoin futures to their, their, their quiver and start trading those. So it'll, it'll be interesting to see how that impacts the market. If it, yeah. if it will, over the next few months. 
Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And you have the halving at the same time. If I think without, without predicting anything, because we have no idea where the price is going to go, with the halvening and the substantial reduction in supply, if more institutional capital of this sort starts coming into the space, you have uh, potentially you know, a very good backdrop for, for a rising price. We'll see. How should we think about generalist VCs versus uh, specialized approaches here in, in the crypto landscape? David, do you want to take it? We're actually, we've been releasing a, a series of uh, medium articles on how to think about venture uh, in crypto as, as an allocator. And we've literally been writing kind of the piece on edge uh, over the past few weeks. I, I imagine it'll be out by the time by the time this goes live. But generalist VCs like have totally failed to to make good investments in this space on the whole. And and what happened? I, I think firstly, their brand had zero halo effect in this market. Um, they weren't attracting the same kind of flow, um, which I think they'd taken as a given because crypto is really its own community with its own origins. It, it's very different to, I don't know, marketplace investing. And then the guys at these generalist VCs were, were dedicating like 10% of their time and brain power to this. This was one of many things that they were doing. And the problem with crypto is it's extremely complex and dense and fast moving. And you just can't keep up unless you're spending all of your time in it. And then they kind of delegated uh, crypto to kind of like a single analyst or principal who probably had to beg to do it. And then they had to go and like educate themselves. They had to go and network and, and build that network from scratch, get flow. Then they had to educate upwards to their partners if they actually managed to find something good. And half the time it just gets killed at the investment committee level because there hasn't been enough education for a, an interesting crypto deal that isn't plain vanilla to get done. And so what happens is that after a few of those deals, that analyst or principal just gets frustrated and leaves and sets up their own shop. And so you've had this outflow of talent interested in crypto from the generalist VCs. And I think A16Z is really the only shop that managed to, to kind of buck that trend. And they set up a dedicated crypto fund within their franchise, A16Z Crypto. But you know the crypto deals that I've seen done by, by the big guys have just stunk of defensiveness. It's like some partner realized that they really needed to index the space just in case crypto was as big as some people were saying. And so they did it with some uh, like hygienic deal, something that could get through an investment committee that LPs wouldn't kill them for. And so they did things, you know, you know, major, you know, series D, E or whatever in very large exchanges, or, you know, I think the, the kick ICO was one of those kind of hygienic deals that you could do without getting fired that was a terrible and overvalued investment. That, that's a zero, essentially. The Telegram ICO was another one of those. And so you had these kind of like small crop of, of hygienic deals that they did. And that was kind of it. And I think there's been a real uh, white space for people to come and do early stage and late stage venture as specialized crypto investors. And Marcos, you've done, you've done lots of work on, on VC. Uh, what do you think? Yeah, yeah, no, I think you 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 mentioned some some great thoughts here, and I'll I'll add to a couple of them and offer a, a few more. So I'll start by saying again, you know, I'm adopting the institutional perspective because uh, I think it's interesting, and that's kind of what I've been observing all these years. I received the the following question 
constantly from investors when we were discussing crypto. They were saying, and they still do, they were saying, we have all these generalist VC funds and they can invest in crypto and they can time it much better than we can. They can um, allocate to the best deals and so on. So why on earth do we need dedicated crypto funds? You described, I think, very elegantly the structural reasons why in a general VC firm, very hard to do crypto. I just wanted to add also, you know, a couple more points on that, that that I share with institutional investors. You know, it's a very idiosyncratic space. As, as we said, you know, there are tokens, early liquidity, it's open source. There's things like network participation, mining, staking, you know, so we can all agree it's a, it's a very different animal from traditional sure. venture. Very different animal. So uh, just as a very simple example of a structural issue a generalist VC fund has is their LPs have not signed up for doing these sort of things. So they have LP constraints, LPA constraints. They have, you, you know, partners who don't, as you said, David, who, who are not familiar with the space. And if it's a consensus-driven uh, type of investment committee setting, you probably won't get the best the best ideas through it. Also, you know, some of the senior partners there have a ton of money on their hand. I last I checked, there's about 250 billion in dry powder in in VC, and and there are plenty of Web two business models that are doing well and entering you know parts of the economy. So they don't even have an incentive to let go of what they've been doing for yeah. all this time. So you know, so in short, in summary, the answer is. No, you can't do it through the generalist VCs. Maybe you can in certain occasions, but I, but at this stage, it's not a good idea. I think you should try this space through through dedicated crypto funds where they can play their game unconstrained. The other thing that you mentioned uh, about generalist VCs, and I came to mind, you mentioned David that some of them did, you know, invest because they thought, you know, what if this space grows very large and I don't want to miss out? So. It's very interesting to note here that in 2017, I believe there were way more generalist VCs doing crypto than they are now. I think now they've pulled out of it almost completely in many cases. And the paradox of this, which points to the fact that they're not the best way to invest in crypto, it's a data point, is that they were investing in crypto when prices were sky high. We can all agree it was a huge bubble in 2007. Mm -hmm. They were investing in crypto then when prices were sky high and when fundamental developments in the space were way behind where they are now. But they think that the space is not worth investing now at much lower prices and with much more traction and more fundamental developments. So I think that's noteworthy. They have pulled out. They have pulled out. And I think back in 2017, they probably didn't want to miss it was the FOMO effect. They didn't want to miss potentially exploding prices, you know. So, in in short, they didn't they didn't really time it right, did they? If the argument was that they would time it right, they didn't. It's easy to say in in hindsight, you know. There's a world in which it could have gone the other way, but I think certainly, if they were going to make an investment, um, they should have been bought into this as a vertical enough to continue doing the work after the boom. And by and large, they haven't. And I think that's a real shame. I agree. L- listen, I mean, the prices could have gone up further and uh, and they were playing a momentum game at the time. 
But the fact is, you know, the very simple fact is that you had higher prices, much less fundamental traction or progress. And now you have much lower prices, much more fundamental traction and progress. And they're not here. So I think it was purely at the time, again, that fear of missing out. And I don't, I don't blame them for it. I'm just stating facts, I think, here. The, the structural challenges for generalist VC to operate effectively in crypto are, are really high. Like you, you need to rewrite the LP mandate. In Europe, uh, half the funds have public money, which is to say that like the state is an LP. And obviously that comes with a lot of strings attached, but among those, you know, very restrictive LP agreements in which they can't just go off and, and do crypto or buy a liquid asset or, you know, even invest more than a certain portion of their, of their fund into uh, projects or companies which aren't based in France or the UK or Germany, depending on whose money they took. Um, because the, the, the public money in Europe is trying to kind of foster entrepreneurship and, and create kind of large tech businesses in their own countries. And so you have a huge kind of clash of incentives. And, and the incentive isn't that because the market is still too small. But I think that leaves this wonderful opportunity for focused small funds who are able to write liberal LP agreements and that let them kind of move to where the puck is to to over the four-year investment period be be flexible about where the right investments are. And it's sort of a, I think you can sort of compare crypto investing to crypto venture is to like traditional venture what like hedge funds are to mutual funds. Um, so mutual funds, uh, these like lovely kind of regulated quaint funds that can only do basically one thing. They can buy stocks or they can hold cash. Um, and that's it hedge funds sort of come along and they say, well, you know, we can do basically like capital structure arbitrage. Like we can look at going long stocks, but we can also short stocks. We can do pair trades. We can use leverage. We can use options. Um, we can buy debt, mezzanine, secured, unsecured, whatever, preferred shares, all of this stuff. A hedge fund ultimately has a lot more kind of quivers that it can use to express an investment thesis. And that's sort of what the good crypto funds look like today. They're able to look at the crypto ecosystem, figure out where value is going to get captured, how it'll be accrued, what's the best instrument to access that and go and do it. Whereas your sort of traditional venture vehicles, they can't do liquid tokens, they can't do this, they can't do that. They're very, very constrained in what they can do. And so it's almost kind of this, we think this kind of structural unfair advantage to, to the smaller players, the, the smaller kind of crypto focused funds not just in their ability to source and analyze deals better because they're more focused, but because they have the structural advantages, um, which, which are huge. And then finally, because they're smaller and this is an early stage market and, and you need to be able to make seed bets and have those move the needle. So there's a bunch of stuff, I think, um, as to why this space in particular, I think, is, is wonderfully suited to specialized managers. David, why don't you talk a bit about uh, investment opportunities right now? Yeah, sure. So one of our biggest observations uh, over the past couple of years has just been that the space moves really fast. And as a corollary to that, alpha and opportunity also degrades fast. And kind of the, the big thing there is you need to be nimble. Trades get crowded really quickly. So, you know, we think that there's enormous benefits to 
really understanding this market inside out and being able to see everything and and pick uh, the interesting kind of uncrowded places to go and play. And and a lot of the interesting stuff that we see right now is actually on the fringes. Um, it's it's capacity constrained quant and and special situations. You know, uh, there's DeFi stuff, uh, tons of interesting kind of uncharted waters there to go and explore liquidations, bankruptcies, other, you know, more traditional special situations. Um, I think that we've got a lot of those coming down the pike, a lot of kind of failed projects from the ICOs and and a lot of miners that may be in, in distress six months from now. And on the venture side, my feeling is we're in a little bit of a, a quiet period, which is probably the right time to go out and raise a fund and, and have four years to go in and deploy that capital, because I think it won't be too long before we see a resurgence in sort of, you know, the next version of, of what crypto looks like. Should, should institutional investors be allocating to crypto and, and how much or in what capacity? How should they think about it? Uh, yeah, no, that's, that's another great question. I, I, I think, you know, crypto is, is a very early stage venture. I think David called it very early stage venture, and it is. It's a new space. It's still working through its infrastructure phase, I would say. You haven't seen the the killer apps outside of Bitcoin, the killer apps um, are, are probably two, three years out or, or more. But in that sense, you know, it's because it's very early and it, because it's very risky and, and because it should be viewed kind of as a riskier subset of venture, in my view, the allocation should be a small subset of venture. You know, now what does that translate to? I think, you know, when we wrote our paper about, about a year and a half ago, uh, we said not more than 1%. And of course, this is kind of a arbitrary in a way, but I would say that if people do their homework, understand what they're getting in and view this space as a, as a potential call option uh, with, with, with potentially very high payoffs, but also very high risk, by putting you know, like a percentage point in or, or maybe a little less, they risk very little capital but they could see, you know, multiples of that in the event that this space does fulfill its promises. And I think the way to play it would be to invest across vintages, keep on investing and, and keep on having kind of your allocations around, an, around where you target them. And as it matures, maybe inc- start, you know, gradually increasing your, your allocation. So in summary, I, I, I'd say, you know, for institutions, I wouldn't put more than a percent. Totally. That, that sounds like a great, uh, great place to, to wrap. David and Marco, uh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been a great episode. Pleasure. Thanks a lot, Eric. Thank you, Eric. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.